Welcome to this week's Rashi Shear, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. And good evening, and we are in Perak Lamad Aleph, Pasuk Yud Gimel, and we were in the middle of that. And it is appropriate that the Rashi we will come to is involving the use of oil, and it's appropriate because for those listening live, or for those uh, in the Shia today, it is the first night of Hanukkah. So it's all Bashet that we're learning about oil. And what is the context of the oil? Well, let's look at the verse again. So Hashem appears to Yaakov and says, Anochi hakel beit el, I am the God of beit el. Um, you must excuse me sneezing because the hay fever is very bad today. So sorry for those listening on the podcast or hear me sneezing. <laughs> And where in Bet El you mashachta, you anointed a matseva, a pillar, which you where you made a vow to me, Sham there, neder a neder. Ata now kum hazot. Now get up and go from this land, el and return to the land of your birthplace. So last week we covered the first Rashi about Hakel Beit El, um, why there's a hay on the Kel, even though it's a smichut together with the Beit El. And Rashi said, well, sometimes this happens. Now, Mashachta Sham says Rashi, Loshon Ribui Ugadula. It's an expression of making something big and making something great. Kershen Nimshach Lamalchut, like when one is anointed to kingship. Kach, similarly, Shemen al he poured oil on its head, so that it should be anointed as a Mizbeach. So Rashi says the word Mashachta means you elevated, you made something great. Now, why does Rashi have to tell us this? And the answer, I think, is if we look at the Pasuk, which this is referring back to. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is talking about what Yaakov did when he woke up from the dream on his way out of Eretz Israel towards Haran. If you look in Perak Kafchet, Pasuk Yudchet, we find, Yaakov got up early in the morning. I want to look at Kafchet Yudchet. And he took the stone which he had put around his head. And he set it up as a Matseva. Now, a Matseva is basically a one stone Mizbeach. And he poured oil on its head. So what does it not say that he did back there? He didn't do Mashiach. He didn't, he didn't do Mashachta. Because anointing and pouring are normally two different things. Uh, Rashi says as well, anointing is you put a, like a cross uh, of oil on the uh, item that you are elevating and you are bringing into a new state of uh, use. But uh, that is different from pouring. So you might think without Rashi, if you look back at Kafchet Yudchet, you see that what Yaakov did was pouring, not anointing. So Rashi here says, in this case, they're the same thing. Because Mashachta here does not mean a particular act of anointing that you do a particular thing with the oil, but rather 
you raise it to a new level. And how do you do that? By pouring oil, which is exactly what Yaakov did. So by saying mashachta is a way of describing the effect of the pouring, we have united our pasuk here with the original pasuk there, and we said that it's the same thing. Incidentally, um, there is a problem if you look at the Targum, because the Targum um, says on the words mashachta here, um, I'm not sure what he says, but I know what he doesn't say. He doesn't use the word rebay to make something great. What does the Targum say, Meshachta? Yes, Meshachta. Okay, so he, yes, he uses the word Meshachta. He doesn't use the word, yes, I should have got that. I actually got that written down in my notes. He doesn't use the word Rabbeh to elevate. Now, if you look in other places, for instance, Shemot, Perak Lamad, Pasuk, Kaf Zion, none of you have got Shemot here, but believe me, that's where Moshe is um, anointing all the items of the Mishkan. And there the Targum uses the word Rabbeh to make it great. So according to Rashi, here Yaakov is, when he says Meshachta, it doesn't mean literally anoint as in a particular act, but it's a general making something great. So we would have assumed that Onkelos would reflect that and use the same translation he does with the Mishkan of Rabbeh, meaning you elevate, you make it great, rather than you just anoint. So to which we can say one of two things. Either Onkelos disagrees with Rashi here, which is quite possible, um, or Onkelos does agree with Rashi, but he uses Rabbeh in a more limited sense of anointing something with the Shemen Hamishcha, the anointing oil that was used for the Mishkan. So it could be, but Onkelos thinks there's like three levels. There's just regular pouring. There's what, uh, what the Possum here says, which is um, anointing, i.e. elevating. But there's a super level, which is anointing the items in the Mishkan, where you use a special oil for it. And it's only that third level that Onkelos will give the translation of Rabbeh to. So it could be he agrees with Rashi, but still, Onkelos and Rashi would, might both say that anointing a pillar is not the same as anointing the Kalim and the Bet Mikdash, which is why Onkelos would still have a different word for that. It's probably simpler to say that on this one, Onkelos disagrees with Rashi. <coughs> There's one more Rashi on this verse, um, talking about Hashem Darta Li Shom Neder. Hashem says, referring to Beit El, that's where you anointed the pillar. And that's where you nadartali sham neda. You promised me a promise. You vowed me a vow. Says Rashi, Asher nadartali, but sarich ata l'shalomo, and you need to pay it. You need to pay what you pledged. Sha'amarta yihyeh bet elokim. And what is it that you pledged? So it, it's not quite clear if you go back to the beginning of Ayetze that we've, we've covered before. What exactly Yaakov is promising? Says Rashi, the promise was. Bet Elohim, but this place will be a Bet Elohim. Sham Karbanot, that you will offer their Karbanot sacrifices. So there's a few interesting things to say. So, number one, what is a Bet Elohim? A Bet Elohim is a place where you serve God. How do you serve God? By offering sacrifices. So, since the Bet Mikdash is built, we can't offer sacrifices anywhere. Um, we can only do that in the Bet Mikdash. Um, so, what can we do to serve Hashem elsewhere? presumably to daven, maybe to learn. That's how you make it into a Bet Elohim. 
Number two, why does Rashi say this? Because Rashi needs to explain why you promised me, well, first on a very simple level, why it's mentioned at all, but we can be more precise than that. Why is that a reason that is part of the process of the Hashem says, I'm the God of Bethel, and you've got to leave this place and you've got to go home. And he mentions as part of that, the promise that you made. Now, if the promise is to give something, he can give that wherever he is. If it's to give somebody to Sadaqah, he can do that wherever. If it's to give one of his children over to be um, a levy, to be the one dedicated to the Bet Midash, which is one understanding of the, of the oath, then that also can be done wherever he is. Rashi needs to connect Asher Nadarta to Shuv El Eretz by saying that the payment of the vow is something that can only be done when he's returned to Eretz Israel. So what is that vow? And why do we need to mention it? It's the vow to go back to Beit El and make it into a Beit Elokim by doing something himself there. So obviously he can only do it if he's there. So that's how Asher Nadarta Li uh, relates to Shuv El Eretz as Rashi is explained. Okay, now this was all in the context of asking or, or reporting, if you like, to Rachel and Leah. Yaakov is telling the story of how Hashem appeared to him and said, go to Eretz Malorotecha. Um, and the implied purpose of the conversation, the implied subtext of the conversation is for Yaakov to say, do I have your permission to leave Lavan's house? And although the Pasuk doesn't say that explicitly, and Rashi doesn't say that explicitly, I will mention that it seems to be clearly what's going on here. He wants their permission because he's involving his wives in a family decision. He wants their permission because, after all, they are Lavan's children. Um, so he wants to check that he has their agreement before they run away, which is what they're about to do. So although we haven't heard a question asked, it's interesting that the next Pasuk begins with the word Vata'an. They answered. Vata'an Rachel Valea. It's not actually plural, it's actually singular, which is often the case when it's two people and one is more primary compared to the other. The Tomarna lo, and they said to him, Ha'od lanu avinu. Do we have still a portion and an inheritance in the house of our father? And they're going to answer their own rhetorical question. Well, it's not rhetorical, they're going to answer their own question by saying, no, we don't, which is part of saying we haven't got any problem with running away. But they start by saying, we have, do we have any more a portion of inheritance in the house of our father? Says Rashi, why should we hold you back by your hand from returning? Um, well, you can read Klum as nothing, that we expect to inherit nothing from the property of our father, but actually it's hard to say that because we have another Klum. So the first Klum is probably to be read as key, like because. Klum, we intend to, we, we expect to inherit nothing amongst the males, because we know that there are sons to Lavan. How do we know that? Because we've heard that the sons of Lavan were telling 
were, were moving into an anti-Yakov phase at the beginning of the Perak. It's also the case that Rashi has said that the bracha that Lavan got from Yaakov's presence was that originally he had no sons, and that's why he used Rachel to be a shepherdess, which would not have been normal if he had if Rachel had brothers, and now he does have sons. So it sort of fits that Rachel and Leah are saying, now that there are brothers, now we're not going to get any portion in the inheritance. But Rush, let's look a little bit more. Um, <clears throat> Rashi has explained why Rachel and Leah are asking something in the form of a question. Because Ha'od Lanu even though it's Ta'an Rachel and Leah, they're answering in a sort of very Jewish way, they're answering the question with a question. Ha'od Lanu Now, why are they asking a question? What prompts that question? So Rashi has turned it into a different question, but that's one is the interpretation of the other. Lama na'akev al why should we hold you back? So he's translating the, the underlying meaning of the question. The question of the Pasuk is, do we have any portion in the house of our father? I.e. no. Why are they asking it as a question? Because really the question they're asking is, why would you hold us back? Why would we hold you back? We have no reason to hold you back. Do you think we have a reason to hold you back? Do you think we're going to get an inheritance that we might be waiting for? No, we're not. So Rashi, if you like, translates one question into another question to make it uh, to fit into the narrative here. Why are they suddenly talking about inheritance? Because that would be a reason to hold you back. But since we don't have an inheritance, there is no reason to hold you back. Um, okay, let's move on to Pasuk Tet Vav. Continues the wives and they say, Hello, nochriot nechshavnu lo. Behold, strangers we are considered to him. Although Nechshavnu is really in the past tense, we were considered to him. Ki macharanu, because he sold us, gam ochal, and he has surely eaten or consumed et kaspeinu, our money. So uh, they're actually saying three things. That we're considered strangers, he sold us, and he's eaten up all of our money. So Rashi says, Halo nochriot nechshavnu lo, are we not considered strangers to him? Even at a time when it's the way of people to give a uh, dowry to his daughters, when is that time? At the time of marriage. He behaved like with us as if we were strangers. Because he sold us to you for the price of your work. So as we know, um, he said to Yaakov, you can marry Rachel if you work for seven years. And then he married Leah and he said, you can marry Rachel if you work for another seven years. So the, uh, the wedding was for the sake of what Yaakov would give to Lavan. Now, what, is, what they're saying is normally it goes the other way around. Normally, the father provides a dowry along with the daughter, uh, which is basically paid in really to the, to the new husband. Uh, you like to think of it goes to the couple, but the husband owns all the property. So it normally, the father of the bride gives the dowry to the husband, and that's how the marriage works. Here, it's the other way around. Here, the father of the bride takes from the husband 
takes 14 years of labor in exchange for the wives. So that's the simple idea that we're saying here. So they're saying we are nochriot, we are strangers to him because he didn't act like a father acts. Normally he gives a nidunya, which is a dowry, but in this case, he sold us for money. So Rashi's explaining a couple of things. First of all, why does Rashi refer back to the time of the wedding? And that I, I hinted at this when I said nechshavnu is in the past tense. So the proper way to translate it is we have been considered to him as strangers. So Rashi has to find a previous incident which belonged in the past, which shows how Lavan treats his daughters as strangers. You see, without this idea, you might think we are now strangers. You know, we're estranged from him. We're loyal to Lavan, sorry, to Yaakov. We're not no longer connected to Lavan. We are now strangers. But Rashi thinks it has to be something in the past. So he finds a past incident, i.e. when we got married. And the word key. Now key, uh, in this case, we're going to see later on that key can mean lots of things. Um, but key here means because. So key is a macharanu, he sold us, is a reason for nochriot nechshavnula, that we are considered strangers. So in what way did he sell us? Answer, he sold us um, to you for your labor. So now we've understood, hello, we have been considered when at the time of the wedding. And what did he do at the time of the wedding that makes us considered like strangers? Because he sold us. And then Rashi says on the word, he held back the value of the reward of your work. Now, um, what is Rashi doing? So what might you have thought? You might have thought that um, the Pasuk says, You're, we're strangers, he sold us, and as part of that process, he consumed our money. The problem is there was no money because he didn't give any money that belonged to the daughters at the time of the wedding. And we just said that. We just said there was no money, there was no nidunya, there was no dowry. So it can't refer back to what we've just been talking about. Also, there's a vav, the vav of vayochal, and he has surely eaten our money. So that must be a separate thing. And that I think is the real driver for Rashi here. So he understands vayochal gam ochal et kaspeno as a separate thing. Now there's no money that he's taken from them. So in what way has he eaten up all their money? He, the answer is he's held back the money that he should have given to Yaakov. He's held back the value of the wages of your work. Now, what does it mean he's held back? So maybe it refers to keeping the wages of the last six years. Now, what happened in the last six years, Yaakov was working for himself. And that was the famous deal, which we discussed at length for the speckled and spotted sheep. And we've learned in the last few Pesukim that Yaakov complained that uh, Laban kept changing the terms of the deal. That if the sheep turned out spotted, then he said they were speckled and vice versa. And according to Rashi, he changed it, Eser Nim, which means a hundred times. So during the course of those changes a hundred times, Laban is keeping sheep, which really should belong to Yaakov. Um, if, under term, if under the terms of the deal, number one, Yaakov should get X, but then Laban changes the deal. That means X is not going to Yaakov as it should. 
and that is Laban is holding back Yaakov's wages. Um, okay, Ikave, um, we also want to say, what does Ikave mean? Ikave means he held back. So <clears throat> when you have the words in the passage, it sounds like he took our money, but as I've said, there's no money being taken. So Rashi changes the word he doesn't replace it by which is what it would simply mean, but he replaces it by so Ikev is hold back instead of giving. So since there was no actual act of taking money, Rashi has to explain what looks like the Pasuk saying taking our money by not giving the money that he should have given. So that's why he replaces the verb Bayachal, which is a sort of, uh, I think, a poetic, he consumed a poetic way of saying he took, but Rashi replaces it by the word Ikev, which means he didn't give, because that's the reality of what happened. Continues the words of Rachel Leah in Tet Zion. Ki kol ha osher asher hitzil elokim me avinu. Because all the wealth which God hitzil, well, Rashi's going to say um, separated, and we'll talk, we'll, we'll see what Rashi says about that. Me avinu, from our father, lanu hu. It is ours, ulevanenu, and our children's. And now, everything which Hashem said to you, do. So that's the answer to the unspoken question. The unspoken question was, do I have your permission to run away? And their answer is yes. And if that's what Hashem has told you to do, please do it. And the reason, sort of the last part of the answer is, the wealth that you've got from our father, it belongs to us and it belongs to our children, so we've got no problem. Because what you might have thought, and what Yaakov might have thought, is Yaakov has become rich from Lavan or from Lavan's flock. So we know that Yaakov has become rich from his own hard work. But after all, the, the seed money, or in this case, the seed sheep, came from Lavan. So there might have been a suggestion that his wealth is not totally legitimate. Some of it maybe should go back to Lavan, the father of Rachel and Leah, and they're assuring him that that's not the case. Let's see what Rashi says. This key serves as an expression of Eila, meaning but, or but rather. That is to say, Michel Avinu so what they said in the previous verse, uh, or the verse before that, actually, in Yud Dalad, they said, we don't expect to get anything. We're not going to inherit anything. So now they're saying, Michel Avinu ein lano klum, repeating basically what Rashi said, they said two pasukim earlier. From our father, we have nothing, Eila, except what Hashem as we will see in the next Rashi, saved from our father, Shalanuhu, it is ours. The word key uh, is an interesting word. And Chazal say it's got four meanings. And Rashi lists them in a few places. One of them is Imperik Yudchet Pasuk Tet Bav, if you want to look there. Um, that is when the context of the Pasuk is Hashem says, uh, in, in the hearing of Sarah, that she's going to have a baby. 
And then she laughs. And Hashem says to her, why did you laugh? And we read in Yudchet Tetvav, Sarah, Sarah denied, Lemur, saying, I did not laugh. Because she was afraid. And Hashem said, Lo, no, ki because you laughed. So Rashi notices that the word ki appears there, and it means two different things. And Rashi explains what it means in each of the two cases. And then to, he says, at the end of his words there, quoting the Gemara Rosh Hashanah, ki can serve as four expressions. E, dilma, ela, daha. That's what Rashi says there. And he says it in Aramaic, he's spoken in Gemara. So that means if, or perhaps, or but, as in but rather, or because. So because is probably the translation we most usually give it. And we probably learn in school, key means because. It's actually much more subtle than that. Now, if you go through the four possible meanings, in this case, you'll only find one makes sense. Um, it can't be because all the wealth which Hashem has served through our father um, is ours, because then because would have to link what's after the word because with what's before the word because. So what they said before about we are nochriot and he's eaten up all our money because all the wealth which Hashem has, that doesn't make sense. So it's not because, it's not if, and it's not perhaps. So it must be, but rather, and that fits. And now we understand that it's actually one expression all the way from Yudalah to Tet Zion. They're saying, we have nothing except key Kola Osha, except all the wealth which Hashem has taken, taken from our father and given to you. It's also worth noting in this Rashi, before we get to the next one, that um, Rashi's added a letter. Uh, these are the things you really have to notice um, in Rashi, that the uh, Pasuk says, Lanuhu, and Rashi has taken those two words and incorporated it into his rephrasing, but he makes it Sh-Lanuhu. What's the difference between Lanu and Shalanu? So, I mean, in effect, they, there isn't a difference because Rashi says it means shalanu. It's the same meaning. But Rashi's spelling out that this lanu means shalanu, which means ours. It belongs to us. Shalanu means it belongs to us. Shel lanu, if you like. Um, whereas just lanu doesn't necessarily mean that. Lanu simply means to us. So idiomatically, it means it belongs to me. You know, yesh li iparon. I have a pencil. Um, there is to me a pencil. But it could mean literally lead in some other respect. It could mean it's to me or it's coming to me. It's going to be in the future. There's lots of things that Lanu could mean. But Rashi spells out by adding the word, the letter Shin, it means Shalanu, it belongs to us. Okay, so there's one more Rashi um, where he explains the word Hitzil. So Hitzil is Loshan Hifrish. It's an expression of separation. So, all the wealth which Hashem has separated from our father, i.e., and given to you, it belongs to us, etc. So, um, the problem we might have is we might be more familiar with the word sal in a different sense. Um, for instance, if we're thinking ahead to Pesach, the four expressions of Geula, the Hotsitsi, Hatsalti. How do we translate for Hatsalti? We saved us. You don't translate it as he separated us. Ah, but Rashi's ahead of us because Rashi says, 
Sheva Mikra. That every expression of Hatsala that we find in scripture, Loshon Hafrasha, is indeed an expression of separation. Shemafrisho min hara'a umin ha'oyev. Hashem separates it from the bad or from the enemy. So when he separates the Jewish people from the Egyptians, what's he doing? Saving them. So Rashi there, I think, is explaining why we're used to sal meaning saving. And Rashi tells us here it means separating. And even worse, Rashi tells us everywhere it means separating. That is basically the meaning of the word. So in order to explain how it fits with our common understanding of saving, he explains separating from the enemy. Either way, in Pasuk Tet of our Perak, um, where we read, Yaakov talking to Rachel and Leah, uh, says, Hashem sailed uh, the cattle of the, the, uh, the flocks of your father and he gave it to me. Why doesn't Rashi say anything there? So this is a question to ask. Why doesn't Rashi say anything there? So it could be that Rashi is content to leave that there as having a possible other meaning. Um, what are Atsile B'nai Yisrael? So in Shemot Kaftalud Yud Aleph, um, at the end of the Harasinai section, um, the, a bunch of people go up Harasinai and they are referred to as the Atsile B'nai Yisrael. They are the nobles. They are the important people. They were Moshe and Aaron and Konim and, and, the, uh, and the Sanhedrin, and they are the Atsile B'nai Israel. That's the same root. So Atsile also means, like, as a verb, to ennoble, to like elevate. So it could mean that's what ya- it could be that that's what Yaakov meant in Pasuk Tet, that Hashem elevated the flock of uh, Yaakov and uh, sorry, of Laban and gave it to me. Um, and in order to leave that possible interpretation, Rashi doesn't say anything to limit what Hitzil means over there. But over here, um, it's, uh, we're here now we've got the Me'avino, so we have to explain Hatzil as has something from our father. So Rashi here has to explain it means separated from our father, which because there was no Me'avino, I think, there. Yeah, he didn't say Me'avichem. Um, so therefore, that alternative interpretation could be could could fit in Pasuk Tet, but it couldn't fit here. So here he has to explain it means it uh, he separated, i.e., saved from Lavan and gave to me. I guess just to continue. Sorry, even you were saying like ennobling and that sort of thing is still separation in a sense. It's, I guess it's a yes, so it's not it's different. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. To be honest, what I quoted just now comes from. Somebody, I don't want to say who because I forget what I'm about to say. I'm not totally convinced, um, but it's a it's a question um, which needs an answer. Why Rashi explains it here? He didn't explain it just a few percent earlier. So it's time to go. They've given the Rachel and Leah have given permission to go, and so we start the new Aliyah of Shishi with Pasuk Yudzayin, Vayakom Yaakov, Vayisa et Banav et Nashav al Hagamalim. Yaakov arose, and he. Uh, put to cause to travel um, his sons and his wives on the camels. Now, Rashi, well, let's see what Rashi says. Ed Banave Ed Nashav, 
hikdim zacharim lenekevot. He put the males before the females, put the sons first and then the wives. The Esav hikdim nekevot lenezacharim. Esav put the females before the males. Shneemar, because the Pasuk says, and so I didn't check where this Pasuk is, but I know it's at the end of a Yishlach. V'yekach Esav et nashav et banav, etc. V'gomer. Esau took his wives and his sons. Now, this Rashi is one of the sort of the classic styles of Rashi, where we have a phrase which is similar but different. And this is actually very similar, but slightly different. In both cases, it's nashav and banav. Um, it's, it's almost the same words. Et banav et nashav. But in the case of Esau, et nashav et banav. So Rashi feels the need to explain why it is different. Except the funny thing is, he doesn't explain why it is different. He leaves it for us to work that out. Presumably, Rashi thinks it's obvious that we're comparing a Yaakov trait, good, with an Aesop trait, bad, and that's all we need to say. So we have to work out why is it good for Yaakov and why is it bad for Aesop. But before we do that, notice that Yaakov's Rashi definitely is establishing if you like a principle here, um, because he, hello, Via, nice of you to join us. Um, he, because he doesn't say Banava Nashav, even though that's the focus, or rather that would be the focus about Rashi, those are the words which are identical in the Aesop case but swapped round. So why doesn't he say, Yaakov put first the Banav before Nashav, but Aesop did it the other way around. He, if you like, abstracts it out, to say that Yaakov puts the Nekeva, sorry, the Zacharim, the males first, and Nekeva second, and Esau does it the other way around. So it's something about gender. It's something about their attitude to males and females. Now, what is going on? And as I say, Rashi doesn't tell us what is the, uh, uh, why Yaakov's trait is good and Esau's trait is bad. So we are left to the Mephoshim to come and tell us that. So the first one may not go down so well. The Maharal says, for Yaakov, the essence is the children, and the wives are a means to get the children. So he sees his wives as not baby factories, but rather as fulfilling the mission of building Klalusra. So the, the product of that mission is the children, the sons, so they come first. And then in that respect, the wives are, if you like, the secondary, because they're secondary to the children, which is what Yaakov and the wives have been working towards. So what about Esau? Esau also had children from these wives, but he put the wives before the children. So continues the Maharal, he's more interested in the wives to have as wives for his gratification. And if they bear children, that's like a byproduct. So he puts the wives first before the children, because in his eyes, his relation to his wives is fundamental, and his relationship to his children is secondary whereas Yaakov puts it the other way around. Um, more sort of pedestrian um, idea. Uh, no, not pedestrian idea, sorry. The muscular David says he puts the sons first because the sons are with him all the time. So if we imagine the family setup, what is Yaakov doing all day? He's learning Torah with his children. He's inculcating, if you like, the Jewish values into his children. Or as we might say today, he's imbibing his children with a sense of Jewish identity. Um, so he's going to put the children first because those are the ones he, he focuses on in his own interactions. And the wives, he focuses on proportionally less because he's not 
inculcating them with Jewish values like he is to his children. He's a model of a Jewish parent, so his focus is on his children. Esau's focus is on his wives. Similar ideas we saw what we saw a moment ago. His focus is the gratification he gets from having women around him. And again, he maybe connects to his children, but that's secondary to the focus of his connection with his wives. Um, I saw a suggestion, but this is not related to the Gemara in Bracha Samach Aleph Ahmed Aleph, that says, Lo yahalach adam acharei isha, bederech va'afilu ishto. A person, a man, should not walk behind a woman in the street, even his wife. Interesting, this is sort of the contrary to traditional um, European chivalry, where the man always lets the woman walk first. So the Gemara says that is not the correct way to behave. And, and I think this is a simple question of sniut. It's not snu'ah for a man to be looking at the back of a woman, even of his own wife. And that's why actually, according to the Gemara, um, it's brought down the halakha, but a man should walk forward and not be looking at the back of his wife, the back of a woman, even his wife. Now, I'm not sure if that's got any connection to what's going on here. Um, I'm not sure how they all fitted on the camels, plural camels. So it sounds like you've got the children on their camels, you've got the wives on their camels. I'm not sure where Yaakov goes. Does he go at the back? Does he go at the front? Does he go in the middle? So I just mentioned that Gemara that says something about not going behind a woman. Uh, I don't know if that's relevant. But what I want to move on to is there's a couple of other psukim that raise a question about what we just said. So if we look at Reshit Lamad Bet Pasuk um, Zion, uh, no, Gimel, sorry. Just a few psukim after where we are. After he finishes uh, or talking to... Um, no, I think... Uh, well, anyway, it's Lamabet Lama Gimel. V'yasem et ha-shvachot v'et ha-yeladehen rishona v'et le'ev yeladeha acharonim v'et racha v'et yosef acharonim. Was it Lamabet? Maybe I've... Lamabet. Kaf Gimel. Kaf Gimel, thank you. That's all I want to say. Um, he put the maidservants, that's Bilhar and Zilpah, and their children first, and then Leah and her children later, and Rochel and Yosef at the back. In each case, it says, what's the problem? Wife before child. Um, so why, if we've established a principle that Yaakov put the children before the wives, and that was like a good thing, why in this case did he put the wives before the children? So uh, it could be, that that's okay, that's where there's a danger. Uh, there's a danger, but they're going to be attacked by um, Aesop. That's the context there. I'm sorry, it's not Lavan. It's, it's when they're preparing to meet Aesop. So uh, he wants the wives to protect the children. Um, and in a case where there's an enemy coming with 400 men, then the adults are better, uh, uh, are better served protecting the children. So the wives who are the protectors and the children behind them that's the order to put them. Um, or you can say, it, this is after that he's transported all the people across the river. Uh, as Rashi said, he made himself a bridge to, so the people could get across. I don't know if that literally means they walked across him, but he transported the people. So if you've got a, a bunch of people to transport, you start with the easiest ones, and also who can then um, set up the base for the other ones to come next. So you start with the adults, you move them across, because they're easy to move across, because they don't around like children do then you move the children and the adults already in place to protect or to set up a base where the children are 
So in that particular context, it makes more sense to move the adults, the, the wives, before to move, the authority moves the children. Another example is in Shemot, which you don't have here, when Moshe um, returns from Midian to Egypt, we read in Perak Dalad Pasuk Kaf, Vayikach Moshe et Ishto ve'et Banav ve'yarkivei malachamor. Moshe took his wife and his children in that order, and he put them on the donkey. And perhaps the answer to that is very pedestrian, in that they're very little children. They've just been born. Uh, well, one of them certainly is brand new because he hasn't had his bris yet. Um, so when it comes to tiny children, it's not very helpful to put the child on the donkey on his own <laughs> and then put the mother there. Obviously, you need to put the mother first to like, and then you put the child into her arms. Um, yeah, if you put the child on the donkey, it's not going to work. So we can find contextual explanations of why in those two examples, it's mothers before children. But Rashi is telling us that in terms of sort of ethos, comparing Yaakov to Esau, Yaakov puts males before females. Esau is more interested in his interactions with the females for whatever explanation, and he puts the females before the males. Pasuk Yudchet. Vayinhag et kol miknehu. And he led all his miknehu. I'll leave it untranslated. Et kol And all his property, or better still, stuff. Asher rachash, which he had acquired. Mikne, so the word mikne again, kinyono, his acquisition, asher rachash, which he had acquired, Padan Aram, in Padam Aram, which is the locality of Lavan's house, and he led them all, lavo el Yitzhak aviv Canaan, to go to Yitzhak, his father, into the land of Canaan. Now, what's the problem? The problem is there's a lot of repetition. Uh, there's rachash and rachusha and rachash, and there's kol miknehu, and there's miknei kinyano. So Rashi, well, he answers one of these questions, which hopefully will help us understand the answers to the others as well. What is miknei kinyano? Now, there's two aspects to that question. Number one, what does the phrase mean? Because I'm not familiar with it. And number two, what is miknei kinyano that isn't already covered by miknehu um, for five words earlier? So Rashi answers that by saying miknei kinyano, what he acquired from his flock, i.e., sorry, servants and maidservants and uh, cow, sorry, camels and asses. Now, Rashi said, um, I think it was the end of the previous Pasuk, yes, Mem Gimel, Lamad Men Gimel. Where did Yaakov get all these maidservants and servants and camels and donkeys from? So Rashi explained, he sold the sheep, the, the, you know, the vast numbers of sheep that he acquired through the spotted arrangement, for money, lots of money, and he bought all this other stuff. That's where he got from. He sold the, the sheep and he got those other stuff. So now Rashi explains that that is what is meant by um, it's the acquisition that he acquired. Now the word mikneh, here's the problem really, has two meanings. It means 
cattle, flocks, etc., and it means things you acquire. Now, it could be there's a, there's a connection between the two because you know, the basic thing that you acquire is cattle and flocks. But without going into the etymology, we can understand it as meaning two things. It means cattle and flocks, and it also means things you acquire. So the first time it appears, Miknehu, he took all his Mikneh, that's all his cattle and flocks. And the second time, Mikneh, Kinyano, means all the other stuff that he had acquired. Or maybe you can say that he'd acquired from the flock, as we saw above. I've just noticed, by the way, that um, the Pasuk earlier had, in the Pasuk, in the previous one we just looked at, had Shvachot the Avadim, in that order. Rashi, and, and, and this is the words of Rashi, it's not the words of the Chumash, so I, I'm not complaining about uh, any discrepancy, but Rashi uses the word Avadim before Shvachot. I just think that's interesting. Because Avadim, Shvachot, Gamalim, Bachamarim are the four things that appear in that Pasuk earlier, but Rashi's changed the order. So um, I just point that out as something interesting. So now we can say that Mikneh Kinyano refers to all the stuff that he acquired through selling the sheep. And the Pasuk now reads as follows. And he led all his sheep, cattle, sheep, etc. And all the property that he had acquired. And then I think you have to add in an IE at that point. What is the property that he acquired? It is Miknekinyano, which Rashi explains means the servants and the camels, and those servants and camels, etc., that he had acquired in Padanaram. So having explained Miknekinyano, it also, although Rashi doesn't spell it out, but I think it has to be, but there's an IE before the word Miknekinyano to explain what is their Sherachash. And that explains why there's another Rachash. So the property that he had acquired, and what is that? That's the Miknekin, you know, which Rashi has explained means servants and camels and donkeys, Asher Rachash, which he had acquired in Padanaram. Um, Rashi's also pointing out, by the way, something about the character of Yaakov, that all the stuff that he had acquired came from his hard work. Because otherwise you might think maybe people gave him presents, Maybe he acquired it illegitimately, but Rashi stresses all the stuff came from selling the, uh, from the, from the flock, and the flock was totally legitimate because it was part of the arrangement that he made with um, Lavan. It was actually endorsed by Hashem because Hashem helped the process happen. So the stuff that he acquired by selling the flock and buying other stuff is totally, totally legit, if you like, and it's totally his hard work. And it's not from any other source. And that's also implied by that comment of Russia. Lavan went to shear his flock. And Rachel stole the terafim. Now, Rashi doesn't explain what terafim are here. So we'll tell you they're household gods, some sort of idols, which belonged to her father. And the missing Terafim is going to come up again later in the story. But right now, Rashi is setting us up. Sorry, the Pasuk is setting us up to tell us that Rachel took the Terafim. So, Ligozoz et Sono. So, Rashi, in this case, is going to fill us in a bit with the narrative to help us make sense of what's going on and what's coming later. Ligozoz et Sono, to shear his sheep. Shonatan biyad banav. That he, that's Lavan, 
had put in the hands of his sons, and that was Derech Shaloshet Yamim Beino Uben Yaakov. And that was a journey of three days between him and between Yaakov. So those two, there's two separate parts of this Rashi. They actually fit together. One's dependent on the other. The first thing is his flock is the flock that he put in the hands of his sons. What else could be meant by his flock? Where else has he got flock? Well, the funny thing is the flock that love that Yaakov is looking after is still shared with Lavan because every time Yaakov produces a plain white sheep that belongs to Lavan. It's only the discolored ones that belong to Yaakov. So Lavan has still got some of his sheep together with Yaakov. So when the Pasuk says he went to shear his sheep, we need to know, did he go to where Yaakov is or did he go somewhere else? Now, as we will see, there's a distance put between Yaakov and Lavan. That's how Yaakov can run away. And Lavan doesn't catch up with him straight away. He catches up with him a little bit later. So it must be that when Yaakov runs away, Lavan is in a different place, but he's with his sheep. So is he with the sheep together with Yaakov? No, he's not with those sheep. Which sheep is he with? The ones he put in the hands of his sons, not the ones with Yaakov. And the second point is having established that he's not with Yaakov, Rashi says not only is he not with Yaakov, he's nowhere near Yaakov. He goes to where his sheep are, which are three days journey away. Why does Rashi tell us this now? Because of what's coming later in Pasuk Kafbet. So we need to understand that he's three days away in order to understand what comes later. But Rashi mentions it here because it's a direct consequence of what Rashi has just said, that the sheep he went to shear are not the ones with Yaakov. They're in a different place. How far away? Three days away. And then Rashi says, the Tignov Rochel et Trafim, Rochel stole the Trafim, Lahafrish et Aviha me Avodazara nitkavna, to separate her father from Avodazara from idolatry she intended. So we can see straight away that Rashi understands the, these Trafim as idols probably sort of mini domesticated idols. Interestingly, others explain the Trafim as having much more of a sort of omen um, aspect, that they somehow communicate to you and tell you things that you wouldn't have known. And in particular, there's uh, most of the other Mahorsha that I saw say that the Trafim would have informed Lavan about Yaakov's departure. And therefore, Rachel wanted to remove them from Lavan, so Lavan wouldn't have like a some sort of idolatrous spy uh, on Yaakov. But Rashi doesn't go there. So Rashi says the Trafim are idols, and therefore, why did Rachel take them? Now, I think Rashi has to explain something for three reasons. Number one, why does the Pasuk mention it? Number two, um, these Trafim are going to get Rachel into trouble. Uh, and they're going to be important later on in the story. And indeed, Yaakov is going to say to Lavan, whoever's got these trafim will die. And it turns out Rachel is cursed uh, inadvertently by Yaakov for that, in that way. So Rashi has to explain why did she take the trafim? Because it's going to be um, uh, unhelpful. So what was her plan? And the third thing, which is sort of a subcategory of the second, is I would suggest this. 
Rashi understands our biblical personalities as either very black or very white. This is a style of Rashi, that the Avot, um, Rashi never points out the Avot did things wrong. The Ramban, for instance, famously says that when Abraham arrived in Canaan and there's a famine, he goes to Mitzrayim. The Ramban says this was a mistake. He should have stayed in Eretz Yisrael. Rashi doesn't say that. And to my knowledge, Rashi never says that they, the Avot had a flaw. Um, the, uh, the antithesis of the Avot of the various Roshayim that we meet in the Chumash, and they are very wicked. So Esau has no redeeming features, according to Rashi. Um, Nimrod is a Gibbot Sayed, Lifnei Hashem, which means he's encouraging the world to do idolatry. If you go through Rashi's style, based on Chazal, is that the good are very good and the bad are very bad. So here you have a problem. Because Rachel, Rachel Emeinu, is stealing something. And it actually uses the word um, tignov. She stole. And Geneva is, is a bad thing. So it seems to me that Rashi has to explain that the Geneva that Rachel did was for a good motive. And that's why Rashi says, don't criticize Rachel. I, I think he's saying, don't criticize Rachel. nitkavna. She intended, that was the whole point. That was what she did. She did a thing which is dubious, but she did it for a very good reason. Uh, she didn't want her father to be steeped in Avodah Zarah, so she took away his mechanism for Avodah Zarah. I think we will pause there. I said tonight we would finish by nine o'clock, so now it's probably a good time to finish. And the reason I want to finish by nine o'clock is because it is very soon to be time for Hadlokot Neirot. So I wish everyone listening and everyone here a Chanukah Sameach and may it truly be a time when we bring light into the world and of course the best light of the world is Torah so it may be a good time for learning Torah. Thank you very much. Amen. Amen. Thank you.